Did I send some of you back a few years? For some of you youngins, that was the Beatles. Back in the 60s and 70s, they were kind of the deal. And the crazy thing is, even the Beatles kind of had it figured out to a certain extent. Love, love, love. All you need is love. Well, today, we're going to talk about love. In fact, we're in the love chapter in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13. You probably have heard a few sermons on 1 Corinthians 13, or portions of it. You've probably been to a dozen weddings or so that have had 1 Corinthians 13 or a portion of it as their key scripture. And so we're, we're right there. And I don't know that I'm going to bring anything new to the table, but we're going through 1 Corinthians, and so we need to talk about it. Or I should say, we get to talk about it. I wonder if chapter 13 might be the climax to all of 1 Corinthians. I, I know that for most of us, it fits right between chapters 12 and 14, where we're talking about the spiritual gifts. And, and I know there's some conversation in chapter 13 about the gifts and love and all that kind of stuff, but there's some other stuff that Paul talks about in chapter 13. And so I wonder, as we've been on this journey through 1 Corinthians, if this isn't the pinnacle. It could be the culmination of what Paul was starting and trying to get his church in Corinth to understand and do way back in the beginning. And if you remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And as we started this thing, how many times have I said, seriously? Perfectly united in mind and thought? Come on, Paul. Do you know who you're talking to here? And yet, this, this is part of, as we said many times, Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone, for his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus said it. Jesus prayed it. Paul says it's important. It's why we've been talking about unity or harmony. The question is, how do we do that? Can we really be unified? And I think that part of the problem is that we try to make things too complex. 
I mean, if you think about it, Jesus gave, or God, the Father, gave the Israelites Ten Commandments, right? Here's the Ten Commandments. But if you read through the Old Testament, there are actually 613 commands. Well, that's a big difference. Then there's this Jewish document called the Mishnah, which is in essence a commentary of the Old Testament. And it's written by rabbis back before Christ came. Most of it was written then. And they would write to explain each command, what the command meant, and how people were to do it. The Mishnah succeeded at making life even more complex. So, here's an example. In the Mosaic Law, it says, keep the Sabbath holy. Which, for Jewish people, that meant they weren't supposed to work on Saturdays. The Sabbath was Saturday. So to clarify this, the Jewish scholars began to write, what does it mean and what does it look like to not work on the Sabbath? So they came up with 39 categories of what work means. And that's not all. There were a bunch of subcategories within each of those categories. So, to follow this command to not work on the Sabbath, literally, there's thousands of sub-rules to follow. Are you exhausted yet? And, And not only that, each rabbi had their interpretation of what that stuff meant. Now, for me, I like the kiss mantra, and other than kissing my wife, um, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. The fewer regulations, the better. So let's talk about what's the one thing, and let's do that one thing really well, because when there gets to be a bunch of rules and laws and a bunch of complexity for for me, it breeds confusion. It's like, well, this person said, but this person, how, how do you know? What's the one thing? This is one of the reasons why I like Paul so much. Because even all the way through the letter of 1 Corinthians, there is this theme. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what Paul was facing, it came back to that, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, have you ever thought about all that Paul dealt with? I mean, we've heard about his you know, physical persecution, his lashes and being imprisoned and all that kind of stuff. But have you ever thought about the weight of planting churches and leading churches and dealing with people in churches? I mean, even just in the church of Corinth, just what we have talked about over the last year, people are quarreling because of who is the better person to follow. Is it Apollos? Is it Paul? Is it Cephas? It's like, hey, I was baptized by Apollos. Huh? How about you? 
Oh, Cephas? Hmm. Or people telling Paul that, you know, Paul, you know, you're, you're a good guy and all, but you're not a very good speaker. Paulus is way better than you. And what about all those believers that were acting like babies? You remember Paul talking about the babies. He couldn't talk about the meaty matters of Scripture because people were quarreling and being divided about stupid things. And then the church is not only allowing sexual immorality, but celebrating it in a sense. And then people are arguing about divorce and about whether it's better to be single or married. And they're fighting over their rights and their freedoms. I have the right to eat whatever food I want. Oh, man. And then there's modesty and coming to worship and abuse of the Lord's table as people were divided because... I'm of an upper class. And then they're bragging about the gifts they had. Some of them were saying, yeah, I've got the better gift. I don't need the rest of you. And others were saying, I don't have any gift or my gift is not important. And so I don't belong. I mean, do you, do you think Paul ever got tired of that? I mean, all he wants to do is proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to lost people. Last week, in my quiet time, I also noticed that it had been a really long time that I had read the Bible just because of my love for God's Word. I have spent a lot of time reading the Bible to try and figure out how to handle situations, where I stand, how do you deal with what's going on in this world? Is it, what do we do with critical race theory? What do we do with vaccines? What do we do with masks? What do we do with the gifts of the Spirit? What do, and I find myself reading and just writing, just writing stuff more in, whether it's defense of my position or whatever, and not just enjoying God's Word. I lost my first love. So I had to do a little confession. Thankfully, as we all know, Jesus forgives. And Jesus loves. And he reminded me that his burden is light and easy. You see, um, we as humans have a tendency to make things way too complex. 
We want the answers for everything. We want people to defend everything. We want people to... We, we want it all. And maybe by wanting answers for everything and defense for everything and somebody to tell them what to believe about everything, we're missing the main thing. So here's an example for me of how humans, we like to make things complex. I got a picture. This is, this is the tax code in the United States of America. On the bottom is years, 1910 to 2010, and on the right is the thousands of pages in the tax code. So in case you haven't seen it uh, or can't tell, from 1990 to 2010, that's 20 years, the pages increased by 30,000 because we have to have an explanation and a description and a law or a rule to cover every detailed Because I think if Paul were here, he said, because you're a bunch of babies. Church is no different. God moves. The Spirit of God moves. Revivals happened. And the Spirit is moving. And then all of a sudden it grows and there's people coming to know the Lord and all of a sudden we have to get organized. And so we get organized and we put structures and we begin to have rules and bylaws and guidelines and pretty soon we begin to develop denominations and these denominations have all kinds of rules and they add to them. And some of our denominations whether it be Lutheran or Methodist or Baptist or Evangelical Covenant Church or whatever, started with a revival and today looks nothing like how it started. People also begun to desire to be separate from the world. They begin to make decisions about, you know what, <clears throat> I, I'm all in for God. I don't, I don't want anything of the world. And so they choose, I'm not going to drink alcohol because I, I want to be separate. I'm, I'm not going to play cards because I'm going to be separate. I'm, I'm not going to dance because I, I want to be separate. And it's all right. It's all good. It's all because of their love for God and then it gets passed down from generation to generation. So you get to like my generation. So out of the revival of the early 1900s comes this holiness movement. People separating themselves from the world because they want nothing more than God. And as these people pass it on to their kids, they become rules. And so, again, by the time it gets to my generation, you don't dance, you don't drink, you don't play cards because they're a sin. Hmm. And now, it's no longer about a desire to separate myself from the world so I can be one with the Lord. 
It's about we're trying to keep our kids from doing wrong. And then what happens? <clears throat> well, my generation begins to rebel. We're, we're going to do whatever we want because the Bible doesn't tell you you can't drink. The Bible doesn't tell you you can't dance. But it's a rule. It's not a relationship. So what do we do? The solution to all of this is love. And the Beatles said it right. All you need is love. 1 Corinthians 12, we looked at a couple weeks ago, and the last verse of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 31, Paul says this, And yet I will show you the most excellent way. That's the lead-in into chapter 13. The most excellent way. Paul wants the church to know that, hey, all that we've been talking about, all that we've been dealing with, everything, problems during worship and gifts of the Spirit and people bragging about how knowledgeable they are and arguing about their rights and freedom, the most excellent way is something that Jesus pointed us to from the very beginning when he said the greatest commandment is to love God and to love others as you love yourself. And Jesus modeled this. I mean, all you have to do is look at the story of the woman caught in adultery. Remember, the woman caught in adultery. She was being used by the Pharisees to try and trip up Jesus. They bring her before him and throw her to the ground and says, she was caught in adultery. What are you going to do? What does Jesus do? He demonstrates love to her. He kneels down next to her. He gets to her level. And then he says to the Pharisees, hey, whoever has never sinned, you throw the first stone. And they all left. And then, and then Jesus said, go and sin no more. It wasn't the first thing out of his mouth. It wasn't, oh, yeah, she's bad. She was caught in adultery. No, he got to her level. He loved her. He demonstrated love to her. Jesus is our example, and that brings us to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 7. This is what we're going to look at today. Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not love, have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in, with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In the first three verses, three times, Paul says this, If I, then he says something, and then says, but do not love, then he has a response. Here is an example of when love is removed. The first thing is about speaking. If I speak without love, yes, it's about speaking in tongues, but there's more to it than this. If I speak in the language of men or angels, and I think Paul's also addressing those of you that think you're all high and mighty with your speaking skills, Brad Friedline. And you don't have love? Hmm. Hmm. Just wait. This is me without love. Are you irritated yet? Have you had enough? You want me to stop? This is half of the stuff that's on the social media today. Second thing Paul says is, and this is my interpretation, if I'm a spiritual giant, I mean, if I can prophesy, am I, man, if I understand the Bible, if I know the Bible, and if I have all the right answers, or I have amazing faith and I'm willing to step out and do just about anything, if God says it, I do it, and if I'm a mountain mover, and I don't have love, I'm nothing. You see, a spiritual giant without love, it's all about him. It's all about her. It's not about anybody else. And Paul says, you can have all the faith and knowledge and understanding you want But if you, have, if you don't have love, you're nothing. In fact, even in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said there, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge or spiritual giant stuff, it's all about me. It puffs me up. I feel good about it. I'm somebody. But I don't have love. I am nothing. The third thing Paul does is talks about sacrifice. Okay, if I give all I have to the poor, if I sacrifice my body, without love I gain nothing. You see, there's a spiritual principle regarding the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God is all about sacrifice. It is. Jesus sacrificed himself. And we are to pick up our cross daily and follow him. We are ministers of reconciliation. That means we are to go into the world and preach the gospel. It's about sacrifice and generosity. Paul highlights in 2 Corinthians, the church in Macedonia. He says, out of their poverty, they gave generously. So, sacrifice is celebrated in the kingdom, and it should be, but... If I do it without love, I I gain nothing. It's nothing. So Paul has shown us um, what these things look like without love, but I I want you to, to understand these things are not bad. Sacrifice is not bad. Sacrifice is good. It's part of the kingdom of God. Knowing God's word is good. Having lots of faith is good. And speaking in the tongues of men and angels is good. Those are all good. Okay, so what Paul is not saying is that they're bad. Don't go that way. He's just saying without love is when they go bad. The next few verses, Paul talks about what love is and is not. We could spend the next six weeks talking about these. I'm just going to highlight verse 7. I call verse 7 the love always verse. Paul points out four things that love always does. One, love always protects. Some of your translations say bears all things. The Greek word here for protect or bear is um, to cover or to protect. It's like a roof, okay? The sense here is of something enduring, something unpleasant to protect somebody else. Get that? Love always bears, bears all things, or love always protects. It always endures hard stuff to protect somebody else or to help somebody else. I picture my mom the last three years of my dad's life when he fell and broke a femur and then fell and cracked his vertebrae in his neck and and was having heart issues. And (laughs) this is, bears all things. She loved him well to the end. And it drained her like crazy. Love always does that. Second thing Paul says is that love always trusts. Again, some of your translation may say love believes all things. Greek word is to think something to be true, to be persuaded, persuaded of. The sense here is of putting one's trust in something or someone else to have faith. This can be hard because there are some people who may not be trustworthy, but sometimes we get an offensive mindset where we get offended by people. 
a great book by John Bevere is called The Bait of Satan, which is a subtitle, Living Free from the Deadly Trap of Offense. One of the things that is even in the church and is a tool of Satan is we get offended by what other people do or don't do. Love never does that. Love always trusts. He talks in there about assuming the best in your brother or sister in Christ. Assume the best until they absolutely drop off the deep end around something. Assume the best. Because offense leads to bitterness. And the bitterness is not the other person, it's your bitterness. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. To hope is to expect and wish for something. Love always expects and wishes for something more, something better. Love looks at another person and hopes for the best in their life. Love always sees the best in people and calls it out. It says, man, I see this in you. I'm hoping God's best for you and celebrating what God is doing. Love always hopes. And the fourth thing Paul addresses here is that love always perseveres. Some translations endures all things. This Greek word is a combination of remain and abide and a word for under. So to always persevere means you will remain and abide even if you are under something heavy. You always persevere. If you're facing something tragic or something hard, love just says, I'm in it. I'm going. I'm trusting God. As we close the service today, what do we do with this stuff? Well, I have some questions for you today. Questions to ask yourself. The first question is this. In what ways do I see these qualities of love in the life of Jesus? You'll find them all. Trust me. They're there. What a great conversation around your dinner table at home. Hey, love always protects. Where, where do we see that in Jesus' life? Just ask it. Second question is this. In what ways do I see these qualities of love in my life? Could be a little harder, Maybe. And the other thing you could do with that question around your dinner table at home is for you to go, I see this quality of love in you. Mm. The third question. If I were to love like Jesus, what would it look like in practice? I mean, Serious practice. I mean, like practical, you know, rubber to the road, boots to the ground. What does it look like daily? What does it look like to bear all things? 
Our mission as a church is to impact people with the love of Jesus on the journey of life. That's why this is so important. And imagine, imagine what this place would be like if we all chose to love each other like Jesus loves us. And what would it look like if I chose to practice love out there in my work, in my neighborhood, in my school? What would happen? Do you think we might see a little revival? Do you think we might see people going, what's with you people? Let's pray. Mm, Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you that you come to us because of your great love for us. Thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins while we were yet sinners, and that's your example of love. Father, we commit to loving well. We're going to make mistakes someday, but we commit to loving well. We say yes to loving each other, yes to loving our neighbor, yes to loving the person that is not seen, loving whoever you bring in our path, because we want to impact people with your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.